gentlemen, welcome to Armchair Producers, episode 81. I am one of your hosts, George Karen, freshly clean shaven and looking like I'm about 14 years old. And I am joined, as always, with the man, the myth, the rocket man cover man, Mr. Travis Croft. Sir, how are you? I am fine and dandy, and I feel like I should be waiting for the police to come and arrest me for consorting with such a young person. Uh, <laughs> it's not lewd. We're not doing anything inappropriate. No, not at all. No, but I mean, it's just like, you know, it's, appearances matter, right? Uh, <laughs> and here I am talking to a 12-year-old boy in a video chat. That's a hey, bad okay. look. You know, I'm, I'm making sure that I'm watching movies that are still within my age bracket, nothing over 18. If I had a girlfriend, she'd kill me. Um, <laughs> and um, I am joined by um, one of our longtime co-hosts here tonight. For those who uh, old yeah. fans to remember, we can see if we can. Right, yeah, he's there, but there he is. Riley. I, for one, am thankful for the return of Rylosaurus. But I'm also thankful for social distancing because... Many people might remember that we would often be recording podcasts and suddenly Riley would make himself known gaseously and it was foul. So there's also that, but I've been on multiple video calls the last couple of days. We decided rolling around and growling was a was an excellent pastime during the <laughs> video calls. Um, so he has rejoined the, uh, the team after extensive negotiations with his agent. Uh, he's asking price. Let's just say George and I are two and three on a payroll. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep, he's, a, he's an expensive fellow to have, but, you know, he's... he's box office, he is box office gold. Robert. It is true, it is you true. Know, you, you pay for talent. Yeah. Um, so if, for those who, if anybody does tune in and look at the chat, it's a video version of this, what inspired the uh, suave new look? Boredom. Boredom. <laughs> Yeah, the same reason that I generally cut my hair, that I um, do most things that aren't legitimately constructive or creative in my life, boredom. And I was looking at myself whilst having a shower, and I thought, yeah, why not? It'll grow back either way. You should have used it to raise some money from some people like I did a couple of years ago. Mm, yeah, that would, uh, you know, involve planning, which... Yeah, I just don't do. Fair enough. It's uh, it, it can't be a spontaneous fundraiser, really. Like, give me all your money, of a beer gets it. Yeah, I'm not exactly popular enough to so like. Oh, well done! I raised seven dollars for charity. I would thought the same, but it did help that I was in a workplace where everybody was very excited to see the end of a beard. So, um, <laughs> I think I thought I think I paid fifteen hundred bucks. So that was um, that was more. I, but you're right. You do have to kind of pimp yourself out of there a bit. You kind of yeah. have to kind of hassle people for money and it's not cool. So, you know, no one likes the, uh, for my birthday this year, I'm, I'm fundraising for the human fund money for people. You know, like it's, <laughs> no one likes those birthday fundraisers. Yeah. So, you know, boredom is as good an excuse as any. Maybe not um, good for the climate or anything like that, but. Hey, it's just, I mean, it's, it's, boredom has started wars and, you know, ended empires, I'm sure, over the years. You know, yeah. like, freaking Hitler was sitting back in his bunker in 1940 going, you know, I'm getting kind of sick of this whole, you know, dominating Europe thing. What, what else is there to do? It's, I, like, it's like that bit in the video game where you see the, the level says, you know, this is intended for higher levels only, and you're like, 
Pish posh, I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> I like to think that Hitler was decided to end it all just because he really wanted to shave off his moustache, but he wasn't allowed. His PR people were like, no, it's it's your, it's iconic. You can't get rid, rid of that. It's your, it's your, yeah, it's your, it's your you know, trademark. I'm like, I'll teach you. So Hitler brand is all about genocide and facial hair. You really yeah. can't you cut one or the other. You, you know, we, we're really going to see the end of this thing. We don't know how you're going to fare in the next election about the Mo. Um, <laughs> this podcast has taken a very strange turn. Hitler has been invoked in the first five minutes. It's all downhill from here. Let, let's, let's get back on track, shall we? Should we talk about this week's chain movie? We should, um, because there's not much. Also, I've had a chance to watch this week. So, no, um, Travis, but, Travis is cheating on me with multiple other podcasts, and uh, I, 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 I feel left behind and really sad. So, I'm just going to eat a bucket of ice cream. It's not you, it's me. Um, yeah. <laughs> but now, I, I have to watch. I had to watch um, Creep Show Two this week for uh, what King for a Day. Oh, okay. King podcast. Have you, have you ever seen either of the Creep Show movies? I've never watched a Creep Show movie. No. It's um, it was kind of good though. Like I mean, I guess I wasn't going to talk about this, but we, you know, it is. But um, <sighs> do you ever have that thing at sort of that rite of passage in the UK? At least it's a thing here, and I think in the US, where you go around to a friend's place when you're like thirteen or fourteen, mm. and like watch horror movies all night. The ones that you are probably not technically supposed to watch. We were the house that people came to for that because we always mm. had a huge library of videos uh, recorded off TV stuff. I remember. The two for the two R-rated movies that I first watched, and I had a bunch of my friends over to watch, and it was RoboCop and Rambo. I know exactly horror films, but I guess they're close. I mean, Rambo was quite violent. It was yeah. Rambo was very violent, but uh, I think it was kind of a tradition. At least I know I had it, where I would go to a friend's place on Friday night, and we worked our way over a series of months through all the Friday the Thirteenth movies. Yeah, oh, amongst wow. other ones in there, you're like a candy man and stuff like mm. that. Um, but uh, that was kind of what Creepshow felt like. It was kind of a movie that would have felt very much at home in the middle of one of those sleepovers at like mm. midnight with about four or five 15 year old kids watching his film. In the sense, it really felt it was aimed squarely at that audience of like, you know, bored, scared teenagers. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it was an anthology film, which was also strange. You do not see many of those anymore. Bring back oh. the anthology film. I liked it. Um, but it was – I didn't even realise about – I've never seen any of these films either. Uh, firstly, it was written by Stephen King and George A. Romero together. Uh, but in the sense that George Romero wrote the screenplay, Stephen King wrote the story. Story, that's story. Some, uh, that's some horror royalty right there. That's right. It's, it's some talent involved in that. This director was some dude I'd never heard of, though. Um, and interesting, the second episode of the three in the show – in the movie was um, about a, a blob monster in the lake, for one of a better yeah. term. And apparently, the uh, you, you created trivia. The uh, the uh, the main special effects dude who was supposed to get the blob monster to work gave up and 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 walked out of production halfway through, leaving <laughs> a non-operable blob blob monster in his wake. No pun intended. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was up to I guess his apprentice uh, underling to try and get the blob monster to work and finish that segment of the movie mm-hmm. and that underling young guy who did that job was a guy named greg nicotero holy shit yeah and so um you're like okay well there's a name we all know and he's gone mm-hmm. on to much much bigger and better things so mm-hmm. if you look at it like where's some horror royalty right greg nicotero stephen king george romero all on the one 
project and um i didn't even realize that greg nicotero is actually behind there's actually a creep show tv show that's but as being on a tv in the us and the season two has been greenlit and will go into production once yeah the covid cares and i'm like well it's it's just interesting i never even didn't know that greg nicotero had done that tv show yeah and then I saw, I saw the movie and I found out, oh, he did do some of the work on this. And then you're like, oh, he's made a TV show based on it. So it's yeah. kind of like it's kind of like Stephen, um, sorry, James Cameron going back and making a Piranha 2 series based on, you know, <laughs> fuck you, I'm going to get it right this time. <laughs> but that's a, that's a segue into something we didn't mean to talk about. But um, uh, if you are looking for something a little different, Creepshow 2, I actually really kind of liked it. Okay. I'm kind of really looking forward to seeing the first one now. Um, it's um. It, it, it's the um, old school 80s, you know, horror mm. uh, with three short films. And the wrap up of connecting the three films was animated. Okay. Really weird, but really good. Um, well, maybe that could be an idea for, so like, now, um, after this next uh, chain movie session, which finishes my, my journey of three. Maybe we could do a bit of a run up to Halloween for some horror movies as a focus instead. Well, maybe that'd be a challenge. We'll see what once I know what your next chain film is. Mm. Let's, see if, let's see if we can focus it. The next chain movie to be something a little bit spooky. Definitely, definitely. Okay. Uh, Speaking well, of the chain movie, this week we were following on from the um, the Australian war movie classic Gallipoli. And uh, it was directed by Peter Weir. That starred Mel Gibson. Um, and uh, we both really enjoyed it. And it's still very, uh, even though it's, what, 40 years old at this point almost, um, it's still incredibly poignant, very well made. Uh, we really, really rated it. So go back and listen to last week's episode if you want to hear about that. But following on, Peter Weir went on to direct this week's uh, movie, which was Witness. 1985, starring Harrison Ford in his one and only, to date, Oscar-nominated um, Best Actor. I was quite surprised. I read that and I was surprised. I would have thought he might have yeah. got one somewhere else along the route, uh, on a, the journeys, something like The uh, the Fugitive or um, oh. yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, it's uh, it's surprising. But when you watch this movie, it kind of is his best work. And I think this is possibly the movie that really got the Harrison Ford point across. Enough! Enough! <laughs> he does it fantastically in this movie, and it totally diffuses the scenario. It's wonderful. But for those who do not, do not know, Witness is the story of a young Amish boy who is the sole witness to a murder of uh, and policeman John Book. Harrison Ford's character goes into hiding in the Amish country to protect him until the trial. That pretty much sums it up, but there's a lot more nuance to to the the story as it goes on. Um, but it, this has got one hell of a of a cast behind it: Harrison Ford, Kelly McGillis, who she's already been in a chain movie with uh, Top Gun. Uh, Top Gun, yeah. Um, Joseph Summer, who plays uh, Schaefer, he's one of those faces that are like, oh, yeah, he's like one of those old school faces. He was in lots of movies in the 80s, usually he's like yeah. a police, police, that's a, Dirty Harry, so that's where I recognise yeah, him. Yeah, 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 that, that's definitely him. Um, because he played the president in uh, X-Men Last Stand. Oh, shit, yeah, he did, didn't he? Fuck. Um, there's Alexander Godunf, 
I apologize for butchering his name, but he is the um, the guy who beats the fuck out of Bruce Willis in Die Hard 1 and then ends up hanging. Um, there's a, a relatively young Danny Glover, um, Paddy Lapone, a first ever screen performance of Viggo Mortensen in there as well. So, And uh, Lucas Haas is the young boy. Yes. He was wonderful in this, but he also went on to be, you know, do a bunch of other stuff, including Inception. Mm-hmm. And he is the connected tissue for next week's um, uh, chain movie. But um, this, it was, it was interesting reading some of the trivia about this movie because it's kind of apparently got a bit of a reputation as being the go-to movie and screenplay for character arc and development of a story narrative. And it, I can kind of see why going back and rewatching it again because it sets everything up and everything is super logical. They don't try and do anything funny with jump cuts or any f- variation of like storytelling, time jumping or anything like that. It is very simple cause and effect throughout the whole movie. And you get really good character development just as the story progresses. It, the opening is really delightful because it starts off, it's showing you the Amish community without very um, obviously stating that it's Amish community. You see like people working on the farm and things like that. And obviously there's no modern technology in the Amish community. So you kind of think, oh, is this a period movie? If you haven't watched any of the trailers and then suddenly you see a carriage going along with sort of indicators attached to it and stuff. And it's like, oh, and then the title card comes up for like 1985. Oh yeah. So you get that very um, odd juxtapositioning of what, when it was released, the modern versus what their everyday life was like, is like in the Amish community. Um, and then it's like a hard jump cut after um, it's like seeing a little bit of the interactions and uh, funeral and that sort of stuff. Kelly McGillis's character, um, what's her name? Rachel. Her and her son Samuel, played by Lucas Haas, they have to travel travel to Philadelphia. They're in Philadelphia, but we don't know if that's where they're going to. They're catching a train in Philadelphia to somewhere else, right? Yeah, yeah. But um, they, whilst at the train station, uh, Samuel goes to the to the bathroom to, and then he witnesses um, Danny Glover very um, brutally but also in his own mannerisms after the fact, very casual about killing this guy that we very quickly learn is uh, an undercover cop. Um, and then um, that he manages to elude being seen by these guys. And then the police are called. That's when we get introduced to Harrison Ford's character who starts talking about it. And the uh, Rachel and Samuel kind of get pulled along at um, a breakneck speed that they're really not comfortable with being in this modern day city. Um, suddenly they're in a police station and this very young, very young boy who's it's his first time into the big city. He's experiencing a police station, not the friendliest of first environments to be in at the best of times. And um then slowly we uh, the story develops and we learn more about what's happening here and he uh, he sees a picture of um uh fuck i've already forgotten his name huh. 
uh, Danny Glover's uh, face and he points him out to Harrison Ford and then they um, quickly try and resolve this only for it to go completely ass upwards and find that it's not just Danny Glover working working rogue and uh, being a, a, a twisted cop, but it goes much deeper than that. Um, a gunfight ensues, which is very simple. Then they get then Harrison Ford essentially has to take them back to the Amish community for them to hopefully disappear until the trial, but he's not even sure if there's going to be a trial. So that's the setup for for the movie because it is definitely a a tale of two cities and a stranger in a lost land for every party involved in this movie. It's, It's really quite clever in that regard and it uses it very smartly. What did you think of this movie, Trav? Honestly, I thought it was okay. Ah. I I thought it was okay. I, I found the whole corrupt cop angle unconvincing and poorly developed. And uh, they're just like, oh, they're corrupt cops. <laughs> More information, please. Uh, why are they doing this? Uh, how is it that, like, somehow the entire fucking police department is corrupt and they're able to knock off other police officers without any repercussions at all, like it's nothing of uh, a scene where Danny Glover attacked uh, John Book in the uh, car park. Mm. Well, well shot and exciting. It didn't make a lot of sense to me. Like, you're going to walk up to him in clear daylight, like, hey, oh, yeah, well, you know, you know he knows. So That's right, yeah. I, I, I kind of found that all, like, kind of... So anything basically involving the angle for corrupt cops didn't make a lot of sense to me because they didn't sell it properly for me. And, and I feel bad saying that because... As you say, apparently this screenplay is, you know, textbook. Um, but uh, I, think, I think that um, they, for, for me personally, I think the moment, the the sequence of events where Harrison Ford and his partner, um, uh, Brett Jennings, is their actor, he plays Carter, they go to that um, sort of like dive bar and they really roughhouse this black guy thinking oh this this is the guy that did it i think that kind of did enough for me to suggest that this very much is not a city of angel cops every one of them is twisted and corrupt in some way whether it's brutality or whether it's you know um, stealing things to make millions of dollars um I think that that did enough for me on that regard, but I, I get your point for sure. That it could have very much spent more time kind of developing that, but um, this this movie doesn't really until it purposefully slows itself down with the rehabilitation of John Book. Um, it doesn't really go at a slow sp- uh, pace. It's pretty quick. It does. I mean, I guess that was the, I mean, I wanted to call out, but I kind of agree with you, but I felt like this is one of the better performances I've seen from a Harrison Ford in the sense, Hmm. I think today, especially we are kind of used to lazy, grouchy, phoning it in Harrison Ford, because I can't remember the last time we didn't get lazy, grumpy, phoning it in Harrison Ford, even in Star Wars episode seven, which I thought he was fine in. It was still lazy, grumpy, phoned it in. You're probably going back, fuck, I don't know, the 90s mm. um, since he, I saw him actually put his heart into a performance, and you can tell. Yeah. So, and I think this is possibly one of his most nuanced performances in it. We saw 
him sides of a character that Harrison mm. just usually doesn't bring to the table. Yeah. So I mean, I saw elements of um, his character from uh, films like The Fugitive. Parts of this reminded me of Patriot Games, which yeah. I mean, probably is just the director of Patriot Games who I. John Frankenheimer, I can't remember, but um, looking at this, going well, that worked in Witness, so we'll just do it too. Yeah. Um, so, and there was sort of, I feel like Harrison was kind of just when he, when he filmed in those was in those characters, he kind of was dragging bits and pieces of what he did here in Witness into, yeah. into those roles. So I was, and as I said, there were just sort of it, it, when was the last time he actually convincingly played a a man in love. Yeah. Or a, a, a character in a love story. I mean, I'm thinking of films like Sabrina, and that was kind of more of a comedy, I guess, even though it was. Yeah. You know, I didn't really dig him in that. So it's so rare that he actually seems to play. I mean, the Indiana Jones ones obviously had a romance angle in most of them, but they were, again, it was kind of a different tone. You didn't. Yeah, it, it, was, it was very, very much the women were in love with him, and he was like, okay, cool. It wasn't him being in love and kind of rationalizing or understanding and um, resolving those feelings in himself. It's Harrison Ford has always been that charismatic guy that people love versus him being the person that doesn't know how to deal with that emotion and that reaction. And especially sort of a forbidden romance here mm. and stuff. So I was a very convincingly played a guy with, as I said, some nuance some conflicted feelings about what's going on. Mm. Um, and it, it, we've seen bits and pieces of this elsewhere in his filmography, but I think it rarely um, in the one place, in the one performance, as he had to do so much. Like the song and dance scene where he's singing the Sam Cooke song in yeah. the car. Like, again, it was weird watching him do that because it's mm. not something he does. And, yeah. and it's kind of, I kind of feel like sometimes Harrison figured out what he did well in the early to mid-'80s yep. and figured that what he did well sold tickets yeah, and kept made money, so he just kept doing it. But um, you, you look at his his um, filmography. Obviously, he shot to fame with Star Wars. Um, that he was before that he had been in um, just a few sort of like TV movies and uh, TV shows that sort of stuff. Um, he had a small part in Apocalypse Now in '79, and then it was Star Wars. Indiana Jones, Blade Runner, Star Wars again, more Indiana Jones, Witness, Mosquito Coast, Frantic, Working Girl, Indiana Jones again, Presumed Innocent, Regarding Henry, Patriot Games, The Fugitive, um, Clear and Present Danger, Sabrina, uh, The Devil's Own, Air Force One, and getting into the second half of the 90s, you see him very much taking kind of safe roles. There's not been a single movie that he's been in where it's been a challenge for him. He's playing Harrison Ford in every single movie that he's been in. And the last one that I thought he was any good in was Ender's Game back in 2013. Which was a complete flop. Pretty much, yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, that's kind of my criticism of, of him, which is a shame because he's. I yeah. think he's actually, again... Uh, like many actors, like, someone like Tom Cruise. Tom mm. Cruise is more adventurous than, Har- than Harrison Ford. Agreed. Tom doesn't work outside his safe space much. No. But he's done it a few times. Eyes Wide Shut, Magnolia, Tropic Thunder. 
Yep. Um, he can do stuff. And that's what you see. I think someone like Tom Cruise, you can go, fuck, man, you've got talent. You can really actually do interesting roles. Yeah. When you step outside of Tom Cruise running down the street shooting a gun at someone, you know, <laughs> um, when Harrison stops being grumpy and lazy, he was capable of more, at least he was. I don't know if he still is because it's been so long. But yeah. uh, I guess the way to come back to going, when you see this film, you see, okay, well, I still think it's kind of a tragedy he didn't get an Oscar nod for something else. But, like, this mm. is definitely an Oscar-worthy performance, and this is him at the absolute top of his game challenging himself mm. and doing something he never did before or since. Um, mm. I thought the young boy was excellent. You know what? My favourite scene, for some reason, in this film was mm. the raising of a barn scene. I, I always love that sequence as well. Not only is it beautifully shot and um, very wholesome, but you still have a lot of that continued character development of the looks and things between him and Rachel, um, uh, the other guy, Daniel, him kind of before this, Daniel was very kind of like, I don't like this other guy making moves on Rachel because I'm interested now that she's single but then by the end of the day, it's like they've they've kind of bonded, but it's not that stereotypical Hollywood bromance kind of thing. It's just, okay, you're actually just a good guy. I can't I can't keep hold that against you. I'm sorry. He was an interesting character, actually. I wasn't quite sure what to make of um, Daniel mm. because he does – maybe it's because he's got that face. He, he's, I'm so, he's not the kind of guy – He's got the look of a bad guy. He's going he's gonna to end up being a secret terrorist or something because, like, he's <laughs> that kind of face, right? Uh, and maybe it's because he was in Die Hard and he played a, a really badass in that film. But And then that scene at the start where he's sort of riding the horse funny as a kid. Yeah, yeah. At the train. And as something was interesting was going to happen with that character, and I'm like, is there going to be some sort of conflict here with mm. Harrison Ford being uh, about that tension? But in the end, I just like the fact that they actually built up an interesting character with a bit of backstory, mm. some conflict with a protagonist, and then just said, yeah, but they just kind of worked it all out. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't happen. No. It should have been like if this was – it should have been a fist fight or something, right, where yeah. it puts him on his ass or, uh, you know, exactly. he has to rescue him or something like this from a drowning boat or something, and he wins his respect that way. But he yeah. wins his respect in a completely untraumatic Mm. run-of-a-mill, realistic kind yeah. of way by being not a douchebag and by putting his head down and bum up and proving himself useful to the community, which is not something you see terribly often in films like this. So um, there were certain elements I really liked about it, and I think you, you said it last week, the depiction of the Amish was very sympathetic, mm. um, and they weren't played for laughs, mm. um, which, I mean, I guess they could have been. And they, and it was in the sense, it was that scene where they're being harassed in the street by uh, street hooligans, and and book has to kick their ass, mm. um, which was actually a very satisfying scene. At the same time, I yeah, I'm surprised that, that they did not, nothing else. Seemed, that sort of just seemed to happen in isolation. Um, yeah. You mentioned it earlier, but the, you think you said the resurrection of John Book. I can't remember that exactly the word you used. Uh, the, the rejuvenation. Rejuvenation. I get that part for me was again weak. Um, I, I, I didn't really fully get. I mean, like you kind of got the hint here and there that like he's your typical hard bitten cop. Mm. They really put enough into that to really for me mm. to really understand who John Book was before uh, he ended up taking the kid. To, um, to 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 Pennsylvania and stuff mm. like that. His sister's kind of schemes kind of sketchy. 
But yeah. it just about you're right. It just moves so quickly through that introduction to who John Book was. Mm. I just didn't really feel as invested in his journey as I might have. I agree. I feel like um, there were two key elements to his um, rejuvenation that, or the the development of his character um, that could have been played a little bit more. And that's his relationship with his sister, where when he when it when he first introduces it, like you don't quick you don't quickly realize that it's his sister. You think, oh, is this ex wife or something? Um, it's only later on that I found that, oh, okay, sister. And um, it was also the fever that Book has, and he starts at like, I'll fucking kill you. And he's getting really violent and aggressive. And it's um, an interesting element that I think injects some mystery into the character, but it's not filled out enough to, to make it, uh, or there's no explanation why he apparently had this really violent side that his sister said he likes the violence. He likes being right. He, he always knows he's being right. And this out fever dream outburst of profanity and vitriol and hate. And then him becoming this sort of like, as soon as he's kind of burnt through that, he's like very um, meek in many ways and respectful of being in the Amish community and, um, you know, he doesn't make any um, jokes or anything about being given the Amish uh, Amish clothing or any of that sort of stuff. He just wears it. And I feel like in a lot of, if this movie was made today, there'd be that funny quip of, oh, it's not my style or something like that. He just comes out and he, he does it. So it's a bit of a, a 180 character flip that I would, kind of agree that it could have been better better developed but at the same time maybe they just wanted to keep it a nice overall quick quick story and they yeah and i guess so i mean there was another scene towards the end where uh, the police chief dude is interviewing his partner trying mm. to figure out where john is and he says something can you imagine john book at a prayer meeting or something mm. like that yeah like i don't know maybe I don't know anything about it. He's a police yeah. officer. All we know, he's a police officer who apparently is incorrupt. Mm. So um, that was not so great for me. Um, I thought the fights, the gunfight at the end had its moments, but it felt a little out of place. Um, I did kind of like the way he took them apart, just mm. about spotting them a little bit, rather than it being a straight, mm. straight ahead shootout or, you know, a, a fist fight. Um, yeah. you know, the top of a tower or something stupid like that. It was, he just asked Get off of my farm. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, the, I like this, the sequence of the corn was kind of, um, <laughs> was actually kind of, um, kind that, of brutal, that right? Was a, that was a really quite unsettling death because, fuck, just suffocating from corn. That's, that's pretty brutal. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I mean, it, it happens. That was the thinking. You hear, carry down again, you hear about it happening in Australia, but someone falls into a, um, yeah, or silo full of wheat or something, and you can actually drown in it because you, yeah, get on top of it. So I like well, once he started dumping the uh, corn, I'm like, well, he's fucked. Yeah. <laughs> but um, that was an interesting way to die. And Danny Glover's death was kind of very uh, melodramatic, um, but you know, kind of very film like. Yeah. What I'm what I'm interested in is what did you make of the ending scene with the 
um, the last of the villain there was his name again, Joseph Summer. So mm. Schaefer's, Schaefer's showdown with John, where all the other Amish people just turn up and stand behind him, and all of a sudden he starts crying and drops his gun. I kind of liked it because it was the passive, um, the passive way of ending the fight, and it was that element of. I think they were intending it to be the Amish community and the way that they live their life. Um, and the earlier on him fighting those street thugs when they were uh, attacking the, the Amish, when he failed that and you could see just the way that he was, he, he kind of walked back to the cart in that moment, like a, like a child being told off and he knew that he'd done something wrong and he just sat in silence and brooded. He knew that he failed that test. And this one, I feel like um, they tried to make it that he won that and he did do the right thing, the morally right thing. And the th- something he kind of diffused it and ended it in a way that the Amish community would be happy about or, or would be able to at least square away in some way. But, but I, mean, I guess the way it was indicated, like, was he just afraid of shooting John in front of those guys? Was he? Why wouldn't he? You know, it was just arrest him. I mean, the Amish people weren't going to get in his way, probably. <laughs> that's that's that was wh- where I was going to come come in on it and just say, yeah, I don't think that they again they didn't finish that that idea off well enough. I think the intention and the um, the goal is kind of in sight of what they're doing, but. I don't think it quite stuck the landing. It was an interesting ending. I'll pay that. Uh, at least they were trying to do something a bit different than um, than, than your standard, uh, you know, like shoot them off a dam or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it, um, one thing, other thing that sort of occurred to me while I was watching it, um, I think this is film, though, that does potentially, and part of the reason maybe why I wasn't as impressed by it as, mm. as others are, uh, is because I suspect maybe it suffers from the Godfather effect. But this has been such a famous and so beloved and so respected by filmmakers now for, for over 30 years mm. that it's, and like I mentioned it earlier, like uh, uh, Harrison Ford, I think, has plagiarized his character here a few times yeah. to other roles that, that yeah. maybe ever the actual pacing and plot points and structure of his story has been mm. reused so many times now over the last three decades that. I have seen when I have not seen Witness before. Yeah, it, it almost feels derivative and dull. Only because yeah. I've seen this before. I'd say I'd say that's that's a fair assessment. I think um, it's you. There, there's an unusual level of familiarity with it, even if you aren't particularly when you even when you watch it, you kind of overall know how things are gonna gonna go. You, there's there's kind of safety in the story in spite of being shown a vicious murder at the start um the the hero having his um sort of like being taken out of his element and having his partner removed from the equation and um being this, like this uphill struggle for the hero to win you still feel pretty safe there was, i don't think there was ever a situation or a moment where you thought oh fuck john book is going to die or anything like that or they're going to kill the kid or they're going to do this or going to do that you felt pretty safe that it was going to be squared away and then having this passive ending was a good attempt at kind of twisting it because in a typical movie 
as you say, it would have been a shootout, a fisty uh, fight. It would have it would have been something way more dramatic and physical than this emotional, socially conscious um, re- re- result. You know? well, I just sort of said it was a very sympathetic exploration of a, a well misunderstood, uh, exploited, and derided part of the community i mean like yeah. there are reality shows about the uh the, the um the amish is, is that a tradition or at least i think is that tradition mm. of certainly when you reach a certain age mm. in the amish community you sort of sit out into the world for a year and then you you're gonna have a stay right. yeah I know it's actually a thing but i i've heard it mentioned that maybe it's a thing um so you know i think there are reality shows based on that you mentioned mm. last week there are points in time where I saw characters on screen and I just found myself thinking, you know, of Amish Paradise by Widow Yankovic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, you think of the bloody Paulie Shaw movie where he's taking the piss out of the Amish and stuff. It's, But in this movie, there are wonderful moments where they are shown as, as they are exactly like us when John Book is first milking the cow and he says, what's the matter? Have you never touched a teat before? It's like, yeah. not one this big. And the fact yeah. that he just laughs, it's like, that is a funny joke and everyone gets it. It's it's those honest interactions that make this elevate above a very mediocre movie otherwise, I think. I don't know that that kind of, they're going to sound like, I mean, it is typical sort of rose-colored glasses. That's fair. But like, no, I was going to say, I don't think that today that they would tell a story like that with such nuance and such subtlety. Mm. I, I think today we talk in broad, broad strokes. It'd be, it'd be, there would be, if we have an Amish character, they would be a caricature of an Amish character. They would be yeah, completely virtuous. Yeah. And, you know, they would not be that, that kind of dirty joke you just mentioned there, right? Like that's what John just told him a dirty joke and yeah. made him laugh. That would, that would not be a scene. You would, you would not want to, have your the Amish person can't possibly laugh at a dirty joke, you know. Mm. So they would be they would be only ever applied in broad brushstrokes unless you mm. had a mm. you're very lucky and got yourself a one of the top flight of directors of yeah you know, Christopher Nolan or a, a Martin Scorsese or someone who was doing their film. But yeah, um, it, it's it's um again I just don't think it's the kind of story that would be told today in that way. If you you were going to tell a story about the Amish, you would tell it differently now. Yeah, absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. Um. Um, but overall, I think we, we we touched on it and then deviated, as we always do, the barn-raising scene. Love that sequence because it's beautifully shot. There's a lot of character work in it, and it really highlights one of the, the big things that I like about this movie is the score by Maurice Shah. And it, I did notice that a few times. It was really good. And it's such a weird juxtaposition of having the Amish community where it's no tech or extremely low, very simple tech with synth over the top. It was a, it, but it worked so wonderfully. It was kind of airy and light and it, um, it really captured that kind of um, whimsical ideology. Um, but going into the, the city stuff, it was, it was harder. It was sharper notes and quicker and more punchy, almost like gunshots. And then coming into the countryside and uh, into the Amish community where they work really fucking hard. They're up at, you know, four in the morning for milking. And 
it's it's all that sort of stuff but it the the score just works really well and just elevates the character of the environment and the kind of the ways of life that we are um shown here the the harshness of the city versus the um the community spirit of the Amish community. Um, you mentioned a few times the way it was shot. There's a funny story in the uh, trivia at INDB, if you can dig it up, but um, uh, apparently a certain marketing company wanted to shoot a commercial in the style that Witness was shot. And in this, in uh, sort of trying to get someone to do that, they managed to get in touch with John Searle. I think it was John Searle. Yeah. Uh, basically the cinema photographer of his film. And they hired somebody else. Wow. They wanted it to look like Witness. They had the guy who shot Witness, but they chose someone else. Um, <laughs> but I, you, you, it looks like that scene in particular really stood out to me. Says, I can't quite put my finger on what I liked about it, but it was just, mm. it just looked right. It sounded great. It was mm. in the context of a story. It just, it was a, it was an amazing, it's go show, an amazing scene. It doesn't yeah. necessarily move the story along a whole lot. No. But, Tells us a great deal about the people who are in the story. Yeah, it's again. This is um, a great example of spending time with with characters and showing interesting characters and the the relationships that these characters have with each other and with the like when um, Rachel is sitting down and sewing and you know they they have that conversation and saying oh I, what what I bet they're not saying anything good. And it's like, no, they're they're very much not saying anything good about your relationship with John Book. It's that catty conversation and it's just more it just uh, elevates the the storytelling higher up. I think um, you Yeah. You you were mentioning it earlier, but this is the first Hollywood film of Peter Weir. Uh this is his first non Australian film. Yeah. Um and I think he, I mean, you, you covered off some of the films he did there in the sense he worked with Harrison Ford straight after this. Mm-hmm. The director, Mosquito Coast, we talked about it last week, Dead Poets, Green Card, Fearless, yeah, uh, The Truman Show, Master and Commander, Far Side of the World, and The Way Back, which is also not great. Um, <laughs> but um, he's, I think, an overlooked director, unfortunately, in the sense that I think he's a great talent because I think this shows, this film here, uh, shows a real what an amazing storyteller and peak he was, and I think also Mosquito Coast. I know we won't be doing that next week, but mm-hmm. I think that's an overlooked film from the eighties as well. That was, um, yeah, I yeah. remember watching it as a kid and think finding it utterly compelling. So mm-hmm. Peter Weir, one of our greatest imports from Australia, and I'll say it again, he got his start making government funded films. <laughs> hey, everyone starts somewhere. Yeah, well, that's a good thing. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. how else are we going to get our um, our film about vegan uh, vegan zombies off the ground if it's not for government funding. Who else would give us the money? <laughs> now, I alluded to it earlier on. The connective tissue for our next and my final of the uh, chain movies is Lucas Haas. Now, Lucas Haas played Samuel, and um, we haven't really talked about his performance in this, but he was absolutely charming, an incredible delight, very innocent, bright-eyed, bright boy plays the uh, plays the role incredibly well and his relationship that he builds up with Harrison Ford is wonderful my favorite element of that is where he's showing Harrison Ford around and he just like here hold my cat and just shove yeah. this straight into John Book's hands it's like okay this is how you do it it was such another 
honest interaction between two characters. It was really well done. My favorite part was he's in the train station and he walked up to the Orthodox Jewish man thinking it was the... the yeah. And you're like, that, was, that was a really cool little scene. That yeah. and staring up being transfixed by the statue. Yeah, yeah. Just beautiful moments. Really beautiful moments. But the movie that is carrying on... Um, Lucas Haas has a bit of an ongoing relationship with Ryan Johnson. He has appeared in numerous movies. He played the pin in Brick, but that is not the movie we are going to. He makes an appearance in the movie we are going to, though. The Brothers Bloom. Oh, God. Ha. <laughs> Fuck you. You were watching it, and I love this movie. Uh, all right. It's a con movie, and we've got lots of possibilities of where to go after that with Rachel Wise, um, Mark Ruffalo, um, Adrian Brody, Robbie Coltrane. Uh, yeah, okay. Well, we want to talk horror films. We're going to try an angle from this one to a horror film, so that leads <laughs> open to many possibilities, including The Last Jedi. <gasps> Boom, I went there. Um, <laughs> I, was th- I was thinking more following on to the Predators movie that Adrian Brody Yeah, well, that's horrible on a number of fronts. Exactly. <laughs> uh, the funny thing is I actually kind of liked that. I didn't hate that like everybody else. It was better than the fucking Shane Black one that came out a couple of years ago. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd agree. Um, I'd agree. Yeah, but no, uh, I'm, I, there are many, many options here. So this is one of those films that everybody says was um, a lot better than uh, its reputation that precedes it. Well, I saw this before it had been officially released. It was at the BFI, um, I think it was at uh, Rain Dance Film Festival when I was still working in London. And I got to meet Ryan Johnson after the screening. He was incredibly charming. And I was absolutely in love with this movie. It's a wonderful um, heist slash con movie with a real heart of gold. Yes, I've, I've, it's been recommended to me multiple times, and uh, yeah. we'll maybe maybe I will be proven wrong, but uh, it it will be and it'll be wonderful. So we, time will tell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that is next week's chain movie, The Brothers Bloom. So if you're interested, watch along, um, and uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts about it as well. I, I mean, it was a historic flop, but I mean. Um, uh, that, that does not by any means mean it was no good. I mean, I actually, it used to be a show I used to watch on, on um, I made their own video podcast before it was popular. Uh, it was mm. called Movies You May Have Missed. Um, oh, yeah. I, I really, really wish they still made because it was such a great show and I found so many great films. And that this was probably their hobby horse to ride. It was mm. always, you know, this is the one film that, you know, they would recommend time and time again. For people to try and find out, uh, seek out. So, if like me, you're cynical because you think Ryan Johnson's kind of a prat, um, but uh, you know, despite the fact, Knives Out was good. Um, no, no, no. I just think he's a, like, anybody, any filmmaker who disses their audience is a prat. Uh, <laughs> being a very talented prat, the prat nonetheless. Um, All right, fair, fair. I'll, I'll, I'll pay that. I'll pay um, that. But, um, but if you, even if you think Ryan Johnson's kind of a prat, and like me, you really didn't like what he did with Star Wars. Knives Out was fucking great. Yes. So maybe maybe this uh, is uh, – maybe Star Wars was the old one out for, for those of us who didn't like it, and um, the Brothers Bloom will bring me fully back on board with the uh, Ryan Johnson train. Have you watched Brick? I don't think I have. No. Uh, that's, that's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, again, it's supposed to be so good. It just looks dull. 
It's it's really good, and it's I think it's definitely got a place in my heart because he ran out of funding um, and wasn't able to edit get a proper sort of like editing suite or anything like that, and he ended up editing it on his own iMac at home. And it's like, yeah, I can respect that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and then there is a big deal, right? He's done Star Wars. He did Knives Out, which is a huge hit. Knives mm-hmm. Out Two is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was he's directed Breaking Bad episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, he's eating a bit and a bag of chips. <laughs> now, as I'm the only one who actually had any time on his hands this week, I will be talking about Greta Gerwig's 2019 version of Little Women. And it's available on Amazon Prime Video. Huh? He lose a bet. No. And this movie is awesome. No, correct me wrong, but is this a this is a chick flick, right? Yes, but it's so open and the performances by all of them in this movie are so fucking good. You could say that it's a chick uh, chick flick. But it's so much better because the comedy, the way that the characters just deal with everything, it is just really, really funny. It is really engaging. This movie is, I'm going to say it now, this movie is going to be the movie that everyone will go back to after all of the young cast in this are fucking huge stars. I think Cerise Ronan's already a big star. Uh, yeah, Sharice Ronan is already a big star. They're all big stars already. But um, she is there's there's no stopping her. I I've been in love with her performances from day one. I think and Byzantium. If you haven't watched that, it's her and Gemma Arterton. It's a great movie by by Neil Jordan. Really really good. Emma Watson never done anything before in her entire life. Of course. Um, Ironically, I think she's possibly the weakest because she cannot do anything but a an intelligent, articulate English accent, whereas the rest of her sisters all have very obvious American accents. So it does stand out. But her performance and the way that she plays the role, phenomenal. Florence Pugh, she is the sort of like darling at the moment. She's coming up. She was in uh, Midsummer, which got a lot of um, praise. She was in um, uh, Fighting With My Family. An, an, a, 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 I think I said at the time, it was a film that had no business, mm. absolutely no business being as good as it was. Yeah, it's got a, a lot of talent in that movie overall. Uh, Eliza Scanlon plays the, the fourth sister, Beth. She has the least to do in this movie, and it kind of feels a little bit like Oh, she's the the also ran, but what she has, she does really well with. Laura Dern, great seeing her in movies again. She's, she's a really good actress, and she does a really good um, performance in this. Timothy Chalamet, he is um, he's going to be in Dune. I think this releasing this Christmas. He is brilliant. He is this generation's um, fucking um, what's the guy from Pride and Prejudice? Uh, oh, uh, huh. Colin Firth. Yeah, yeah. He, he this movie, the way that he is portrayed in this, this could very easily be his his moment for for that kind of thing. Um, but he also shows nice variety and depth of character throughout the whole thing as well. Um, 
Bob Odenkirk turns up as the father. He's not in it very much, but he's charming as Bob Odenkirk to so easily is. Uh, James Norton is um, a face that I recognize, Peter, because I decided for the fuck of it to watch the remake of Flatliners that came out a couple of years ago. <laughs> Okay. That was not a good movie at all. First one um, wasn't good. Yeah. Oh, the first one, it's a cult classic in the perfect term of it's not actually great, but you have fond memories of it for some reason. Um, but James Norton is very good in it. Uh, in this role, Chris Cooper is in this movie, and he is quality Chris Cooper on display. And, of course, Meryl Streep, who, you know, there's – there's not a single word of praise that hasn't already been levied against her. She is the the gold standard. Um, and this is directed by, by Greta Gerwig, who um, she previously worked um, with uh, Cheryl Rowan on um, Lady Bird, which, which was is really good. Yeah, really, really good. Um, and she's a, a name that I've heard bandied around quite a lot, but she's, Fucking talented between Francis Ha. No, she is. Uh, I've, I've been on this, I've been on the um, the Greta Gerwig bandwagon for a little while now. She's hmm. since Francis Ha came out a few years ago, she's uh, a really, really promising young actor. Well, probably it looks like she's heading more towards directing now than acting. Hmm. Uh, she's a fine actress as well, and she's going to direct Barbie next, which is going to be fascinating considering yeah. the writer is Noah Baumbach. Who okay. is, uh, uh, I think she's. I think he's actually a Greta's partner, if I'm not mistaken. But okay. he wrote Francis Ha. He wrote the Squid and the Whale and Marriage Story from last year. Okay. Uh, and now he's going to write Barbie. That is such a weird thing. And they've got apparently they've got Margot Robbie to be Barbie. That's, that's um, a very bizarre. It's a weird combination. It's like getting Tarantino in, you know, to, to direct Sex in the City 3. I mean, you don't <laughs> see it just out of pure bloody minded curiosity. Yeah, yeah. It look like it's going to make sense. Yeah. But um, every single person involved in this movie is firing on all cylinders. I heartily recommend everyone watch it. It is a bit long. It's just over the two, I think it's two hours, ten minutes in total. But... If you like, um, it's kind of does it a bit of a disservice to simile to it, but just the the period that it's set in and the um, the type of um, social conversations that are happening throughout throughout it. If you like any of the Jane Austen adaptations and that genre and that well that subgenre of movies, you are going to fucking love this. This is really really good. I was not expecting it at all i just thought fuck it why not i'm really interested in dune i want to just see a bit more i'm a fan of many of the people in this movie i'll give it a shot and i was just enraptured um absolutely brilliant really really good i'm not i'm not going to say much more about it because i just want people to go out and experience it and it's on amazon prime it is absolutely worth your time really really great it um it's, it's a strong recommendation because I would instantly look at this and go, no, mm. because Little Women, and you're right, that, that feeds in my head that says, file under Jane Austen, mm. which I hate yeah. films. Yeah. Um, and it looks like period films, just generally speaking, don't do it for me. Mm. Plus, it looks like a chick flick. 
But um, you've almost sold me on it. You're, I'm curious now. It's It's got its own... There's a vibrancy to the way that all of the sisters act and interact and the freshness of the direction. It's It feels like as it actually is. This is um, an adaptation of Little Women by modern-day women delivering it so there is i feel like anyone would be able to actually connect with this and go yep i get it and yes it is set in this uh in the period um uh, period time of around the civil war um i think it was the civil war or the first world war i can't remember exactly now i'm getting confused but the the way that they talk the the speed of the the quips between them even though they are still very much in that uh classical conversational tone it still feels very fresh and modern you could so easily redo this whole movie keep the same damn script and just put them in modern day clothing in a modern day setting and it would feel great really good really impressed in your opinion Mm. i'm gonna put this out there because i'm curious okay is it offensive or is it out of word, not PC. Is it not PC to call a film a chick flick these days? Hmm. <sighs> Which is a little bit outside the realm of what we normally do. But I'm sort of, my instant thing is like, obviously I'm of a different generation. I go like, chick flicks was definitely a, definitely a thing. But mm. Is that terminology a little outdated, do you think? I wonder if it's outdated now. Because to my just from my my own experience of movies and TV shows and things coming out, um, most of them, most uh, most things are generally focused on one one genre or another in many many ways. Like you know, the Stranger Things, it's got a lot of strong females in it, but I think that it definitely more leans towards the traditional. Gen- uh, genetic side of men focused ideology the um certainly a book flick as well i mean if, if, oh, if yeah absolutely any yeah. flick would be fast and furious so even though obviously there are women who like those films and there are men yeah. who love jane austen films but if i'm going out to make a film like little women who am i going to sell it to i'm selling it to women yeah but i think i think that there's definitely still that I think the idea of chick flick is something more marketing that push now. I think that there's just that openness of, no, anyone can watch this movie. Yeah, it's about young women growing up in a in a period of time, but anyone can enjoy this. I'm not ex they're they're not purposefully excluding people from from its design. I think the last time that a big chick flick movie came out is possibly sex in the city 2 where i don't think there are any straight guys or you know, however they want to identify that or just go yeah i'm gonna watch that i think it's a new genre of chick flick i mean i i'm gonna assume now that it is not not, offen- not offensive and <laughs> listening later or you are listening now and you disagree with me jump on our facebook page and disagree with Happy to hear it. Uh, happy to hear your reasoning because, like, that's why I'm asking. I don't want one of those dicks, but I'm asking the question because I'm like, I wonder if people are not cool with that anymore. Yeah. Um, but I'm thinking of things like Charlie's Angels. 
which is a I think a slightly more a slightly different tone of chick flick in a sense. It's an action film, but it was quite obviously aimed at women because it's all about girl power, and that was kind of the whole. I mean, that may have been why it flopped, but um, you know, now, have, you, have you actually watched that? I haven't. I've just I've watched a lot of I've watched um I've seen quite a lot of commentary on it because mm. it did do well, and then of course Elizabeth Banks came out and Ryan Johnson her audience um, by saying if you didn't go see this film you're a sexist or I, I that is way her comments have been interpreted. So I think that actually the Charlie's Angels movie thing is an interesting thing to bring to the table because the. McGee versions, Charlie's Angels and Charlie's Angels Full Throttle, they were dressed up to be chick flicks, action chick flicks, I think. But you just scrape a teeny tiny little tiny amount of paint off of that veneer and suddenly you see that, no, this is a bloke movie about sexy women beating the fuck I would never have argued for a second with those ever in any way when pretending to be chick flicks because you had Cameron Diaz dancing in her underpants in the trailer, the first one. They were quite obviously targeting uh, targeting that film with men. The women were part of a male gaze. It was, you know, uh, they were obviously kind of playing them as sex objects as yeah. much. Sex objects you kick ass, whereas this new one, not so much. Well, watching watching the new one, which I did a couple of weeks ago. I'm uh, sorry. I've been very bored. <laughs> um it again tries to push that feminism girl power message, but doesn't really actually translate to the story that they're telling or the characters that they are showing you or how they are even shown. It's it's very generic in the end, and it's like, okay, I thought that this was going to be something a little bit more interesting i thought that like um oceans eight did a better job of um kind of putting those social ideas of the female cast all female cast put together um doing things slightly different to what the men did and making it actually an interesting talking point of it being the women um that did a much better job of it versus this one where it's like okay you're kind of only skin deep on the message that you're trying to push I mean, this is back to, I mean, I don't want to get into too poor, but it's just sort of, an idea that popped into my head is whether chick flicks a term we should be using anymore or not um, being. So every now and again, I, I mean, I think I've talked about it before. I found as a, as a YouTube channel called uh, Reaction or Fine Brothers Entertainment. They've done, mm-hmm. they started, got their start doing the react videos. And it was like kids react, adults react, and those teens react. Oh, yeah. and teens react to Seinfeld last year, I think. And uh, the, the, a lot of them, a couple of the kids were actually like, this is really offensive. There's no way this TV show would be allowed to air today with these attitudes. And I'm like, attitudes? What are you talking about? And those days, they were talking about the, the clip, uh, the, scene, the famous uh, episode in Seinfeld where uh, Jerry and George are out of this gay when they're not. And oh. the whole joke, running joke was, oh, no, everyone's going to think we're gay. <laughs> anything wrong with that. Um, and yeah. like, they're like their attitude towards they're like these kids are watching and going that attitude towards homosexuality is horrible and I'm like no 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 but it was made 25 years ago right like yeah. I mean the attitude to it was a different world like being gay wasn't quite as cool as it is now so but that, this is one of those moments where I suddenly realize that I'm really old and <laughs> that um, 
but I, I'm not quite as uh, what my ideas are necessarily the hmm. the running the, the mainstream now, or at least a lot of there are some very different ideas about what's okay and what's not okay and what's offensive these days. So I'm sort yeah. of throwing it out there, going, should I stop using the term chick flick? Is that like something that yeah. people don't like anymore? And yeah, it, it, it's it's interesting. It you sort of you're right. The straight a straight bat ahead steel magnolia style chick flick is a little bit rarer today yeah. when they're trying to repackage the chick flick, which I think a film like Ocean's Eight, a film like um, uh, uh, Charlie's Angels, a film like the 2016, maybe Ghostbusters, maybe not. But, like, again, trying to insert the, uh, the girl power message into a male-dominated genre and then try and sell that to women. Yeah. yeah. It's, a bit like, it's a bit like selling skin, skin cream to men. Yeah. <laughs> Where, where's, where's our, our market for... But action films is kind of saturated now, right now. Who else can we sell action films to? Yeah. <laughs> I think that it's um I think it's a phrase that people probably don't want to use because it does kind of feel derogatory, because we should just view movies as movies and not gen- gendered or anything like that. Um but it's Going going back and to, like talking about their uh, kids' attitudes to Seinfeld and stuff, it's time. Time is always the hard thing to to bring into modern conversation. Um, it's the I think it's like the twenty fifth anniversary of Seven coming out. Yeah, I, I shared that um, on Facebook, and one of the one of my friends, Richard, big fan of the show, he said, "Oh, I can't really watch this movie anymore because of Kevin Spacey." And it's that question of can you separate the art from the artist, um, and it's that's that's an ongoing debate. Time has revealed that Kevin Spacey is a fucking foul human being, but he did fucking good work. And time has educated society to a point where going around saying "oh, gay" is not appropriate, and that sort of language has changed now. But does that mean that we have to go back and change this? We've talked about this repeatedly of, you know, things like them editing classics like Gone with the Wind and all of that sort of stuff and putting um, addendum notes at the front of it saying that uh, social attitudes have changed in this time. Fucking hope so, because if it's the same as what it was 50, 100 years ago, we've not progressed as a society. So we should be able to change and we should, it shouldn't, but it shouldn't also make those sorts of things uh, a taboo. It, it's only we've, we've talked about it at noise, and we won't go down that rabbit hole again. I'm going to say that I do find myself quite regularly confronting that question mm. uh, more and more because they, more and more and more people have been me too, and so they should have been. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, and we've. I, I have this conversation with friends of mine who are huge Michael Jackson fans, mm. and my question: How can you listen to Michael Jackson without thinking about what he did? But very every now and again, I'll catch myself watching a Kevin Spacey movie on TV. Yeah. Or on, on, on on streaming, and you'd be like, "Jeez, he's fucking good." But you're like, and, or there's a there's a, a thing I saw recently in a conversation somewhere online where people were, for want of a better term, me tooing David Bowie. Uh, in that David Bowie is now people, oh, he's a piece of shit. You know, he he had sex with underage girls back in the seventies and stuff. And I read an interview with one of them once, and they didn't sound like they liked it. And you're like, well, obviously is. Not okay, but yeah. um, you know if that's the truth, it's like I I don't know how true that is. It's just something I've read someone say. Mm-hmm. And so and you go and then like that that that, that is quite a confronting um, thing mm-hmm. for me to read because 
while as much as I like someone like Kevin Spacey as he's actor, you know, well, not a massive loss to my life that I'm not going to watch Kevin Spacey films anymore. Mm. But if I had, to, if it turned out that David Bowie was a genuine shitty human being, mm. and that was like something that actually, you know, if we had a Bill Cosby type situation, a number of his, if there were victims, I'm not saying they are. If women came out and said, "Hey, he is a piece of shit, and this is what he did to me." Yeah. Um, then I'd be finding myself in the same situation as my friends who love Michael Jackson. Right? They love Michael Jackson. They're like, they don't. They're going to be burying their heads in the sand, going, "I don't know if I believe all that." And, mm. and I don't know. I'd have. I would then be sitting in that position as well, going, "Am I? I don't want to. I don't want to have to believe this stuff." But here we are. Um, yeah. I'd like to think I react better, but it would be a harder choice to make. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I feel like I'm rare, rare creature in that I, I feel like I can separate the art from the artist and especially for actors because they are their job is to portray someone else. I'm not watching Kevin Spa- uh, I'm not watching Kevin Spacey in this movie. I am watching the character John Doe in for, for seven, for example. And the whole movie, it is not, it, it's a part of a movie and the movie is phenomenal. He is a fucking asshole. He is horrible and should burn in hell. Never going to um, hold him up as a moral human being or anything like that. But he is, or at the very least, he was incredibly talented. And I, I can't, just can't deny that. I'm not going to box that away. It's like, nope. That's 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 no man land. I'm not going in there. I think we've said it before. I think there's a, a line, right? Mm. A line someone has to cross it. Like, whereas, well, you're right. You can separate the art from artists, but there is some people out there who are just so genuinely reprehensible. I don't know that, you know, um, even your line might be crossed eventually. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is not a challenge for anyone out there. <laughs> absolutely not. Like, I, I am going to say there was a band out there called Lost Prophets. I'm not going to talk about what the lead singer of that band did. Mm. If you're interested to find out, you can jump on Google. Don't at me afterwards if you find out and you don't like what you read because the guy was he made Kevin Spacey look like an angel. Um, so you know, I, I not that I was a huge fan of that band, but I'm like, you know, I think there's a line everyone could cross. Whereas, you know, uh, it, I, it's 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 not where we ended up. Decided that not this is an unusual place where this conversation has ended up. We've said it before, but um. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it is an interesting one to try and do, and I think you're right. You can separate them, and maybe your line for separating the artist and the art, what someone has to do before it, it becomes too much for even you to handle. Mm. Be, um, I'm sure you have a line somewhere in the sand, you know, like, well, Hitler, you know, he was kind of a shithead, but he, his paintings were pretty good. <laughs> well, you know, there's even then, I can kind of argue a lot of the things that he did, like um, uh, uh, pushing forwards with the autobahn and um, timetabling and things like that. Those are good things, but in Hitler's case, vastly outweighed by genocide. Yeah. <laughs> you know, genocide is kind of a hard line. It's hard to get past that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's quite hard. <laughs> well, we started with Hitler. Maybe we should end there because um, <laughs> before we get too much to go for, too much further down this rabbit hole and get sued or, or freaking cancelled on Twitter, um, <laughs> it's going to happen one day, I swear to God. One day. That's the goal. We'll know we've made it when we yeah. get cancelled. Your, your book's going to get options right, and then you're going to end up getting James Gunned. <laughs> 
Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of the show. It's only two conversations, but we still managed to talk for over an hour. We're, we we talk a lot of bollocks, don't we? Um, next week, we are going to be talking about The Brothers Bloom. Amazing Ryan Johnson movie that is absolutely going to win Travis's heart. I have no doubt. <laughs> I have every doubt. He's a difficult man. Um, a grumpy old curmudgeon, that is true. And we will have a few more topics of discussion for you then. I will probably be talking about the impending release of uh, Super Mario 3D All-Stars on Nintendo Switch. They're releasing Super Mario 64, Super Mario Sunshine, and Super Mario Galaxy 1. It's coming out on Friday, and I'm looking forward to playing those games again. Yeah. Yeah. I don't pray any promises, but I have some time in between cheating on George. I will try and get on to a, see if I can catch an episode two of a new season of The Boys. Mm-hmm. I'm very big fans of season one. Mm, I, I have many thoughts, but I will wait for you to, to view it before I unload. <laughs> on that note, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. We'll see you next week. Good night. Good night. <laughs>